What's up, Creole fam? Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, social media director here at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Jerry and Keith Gaynor, managing editor of politics and Washington correspondent at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, how do we become abolitionists? This week, we're talking with author, educator, abolitionist, and Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors about her new book, 12 Steps to Changing Yourself and the World, an Abolitionist Handbook, in which she charts a framework for how everyday activists can effectively fight for an abolitionist present and future. Ooh, listen, I'm so excited to talk to Patrice because I have questions, Jaren. You already know. Uh, <laughs> because I think while we here at Dear Culture oftentimes touch on themes of social justice and activism, more times than not, it can really feel unattainable, right? So we can believe in social justice ideals and practices, but figuring out what everyday activism looks like can be a challenge. I also know for me, abolitionist, nah, that kind of ideology might not... I'm, I'm still, I'm working there. It's a journey. It's a journey. <laughs> so I'm excited to take a step back with her and actually have a real conversation about what it means to be an abolitionist in layman's terms. Absolutely. You know, there's so much in this new book to unpack, including reimagining reparations, how to care for ourselves while fighting for the greater good. And you know how I feel about my self-care and how to navigate the feelings of seeing flaws in a system but not yet being able to operationalize an alternative. So I'm really excited to really dive into this conversation with Patrice. So without further ado, let's get into it. Patrice Cullors is a New York Times bestselling author, educator, artist, and abolitionist from Los Angeles, California. Co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, Patrice has been on the front lines of abolitionist organizing for 20 years. Since she began the Black Lives Matter movement in 2013, it has expanded into a global foundation supporting Black-led movements in the U.S., U.K., and Canada, and has been nominated for the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize. Time 100 also named Patrice as one of the 100 most influential people in 2020. Patrice has led multiple Los Angeles-based organizations, including Dignity Empower Now, Justice LA, Reform LA Jails, which have won progressive ballot measures, fought against a $3.5 billion jail plan, and implemented the first ever Civilian Oversight Commission of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Patrice is also the faculty director of Arizona's Prescott College, co-founder of the Crenshaw Dairy Mart, writer and author of When They Call You a Terrorist, and her new release, which we will talk about today, 12 Steps to Changing Yourself and the World, an Abolitionist Handbook. She's a force, and we're so excited to welcome her to Dear Culture. Patrice, welcome. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. Uh, that's a humbling um, introduction. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I think it's very deserving. And uh, I've been reading your book and you really define abolition very clearly in your book. And there was a point in there, uh, there was a part of the definition that really resonated with me. And that was defining it as a system that does not rely on punishment as accountability. And my, I want to open up the discussion for our listeners 
defining what abolition is? And more importantly, how has abolition been defined traditionally? And what is the goal of the abolition movement today? Beautiful. Um, one, I just want to say I love y'all. I love the group. I'm so grateful to be in this conversation with y'all. It's some of my favorite you know, things to do is talk with Black people about abolition. Um, we have a long history. I think what some people think of the word abolition, they think about slavery and the abolition of slavery. And while the abolition of slavery did happen, it happened with one caveat. And many people, you know, many of the listeners um, have seen the, the documentary by Ava DuVernay, 13th, that explains that, yes, we abolished chattel slavery, and then we replaced it with the system of imprisonment and policing. Uh, and the 13th Amendment really sealed the deal on that. So uh, in our modern day abolitionist movement, really led by um, the one and only Angela Davis and many of her colleagues like Ruthie Gilmore um, and so many other mostly black women, um, but also you know, brilliant uh, black men and, and black folks of all genders who are really deciding that this modern day abolitionist movement must look at our relationship to prisons and police. And for me, really the simple definition for abolition in this time, in this modern day time, is us getting rid of police, prisons, court systems, surveillance and detention centers. And uh, people are scared of that. It's scary to think about, wait, hold up. We got, we got this whole thing in place. I know it don't work. But getting rid of it, like, why would we get rid of it? Why wouldn't we just reform it or amend it? And my argument in this book is we've tried that so many times. It's it's the time now, as abol many abolitionists say, to imagine a new system. And I'll say this. I'll say this one last thing, and then I know you all. I know we're about to get into it. But right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're two years in. I know. Raise your hand if you did not think we'd be two years in to a pandemic. Exactly. Okay. I, I, you know, we thought like, okay, we got a couple of weeks off of work. Got it. I literally just told some of my, my sorority sisters, I was like, remember when we used to think, I thought six months tops, and then I'm going to be celebrating my half birthday. It's going to be great. Lies. Lies. Two years into it. And I don't, I don't think this pandemic's going anywhere. And so we're watching also this current infrastructure fail us. It's failed us around healthcare. It's failed us around childcare. It's failed us in so many ways. And so abolition is also calling for us to imagine something new and give us the possibility of something new. I also have a follow-up because I live here in DC covering Washington politics. And we know that there's the word abolition is not used anywhere when talking about policy and legislation. Oftentimes we hear reform and reform has been uh, brought up a lot when talking about policing and the prison system. Can you, because you, you touch on this in your book, and I would love for you to uh, explain the, the difference between abolition versus reform. Sure. Well, I'll say this. Reform is not a bad thing as long as it's, and this is, I think, chapter nine, I think. It's called non-reformist reforms. And so, yes, we, we, we're not going to be able to, like, shut down prisons overnight, close all police stations overnight, end detention centers, stop surveillance. That's not how the world works. But we can move towards abolition. And so for me, the non-reformist reforms, reforms that get us closer to freedom, 
reforms that don't pour billions of dollars back into this terrible system. For example, you know, big reform that got touted and then we realized it don't work, which is bo police body cameras. Okay, everybody thought, well, just we just got to put a body camera on a cop. It'll happen <laughs> what's happening and they'll feel accountable like, that's actually not how it's worked, right? In South Central, we put body cameras on cops and they turn the cameras off. They turn them off. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we poured all this money into this reform and we touted it, right? As like, this is gonna be the solution. And all it, it did was give more money to police. So what we're ask, actually asking for folks to do is think about reforms that are gonna get us closer to getting rid of the systems that harm us and closer to building systems that care for us. Los Angeles, we were able to stop two $3.5 billion jails. That's a reform because we still have more jails and we're still working towards uh, having an economy of care, but we stopped those. And so there's a, there's a lot of folks across the country that are trying to figure out how they challenge police budgets, right? How they challenge the over-incarceration of our communities. And so I really think that that's where we're at. So, okay, I have a question because <laughs> I often think, can you be an activist, right? A quote unquote activist and not be an abolitionist? Or like, how does abolition intersect with activism? Like, are there distinctions? Can you not be a real true activist without being an abolitionist as well? That's a good question. No, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do us like that. Um, because <laughs> we're of our own journey, I call it an abolitionist journey in the book. And I, and I talk about this on my socials, like, not everybody's going to be an abolitionist. That, that's not how we ended slavery. Not all, not all enslaved people are abolitionists. Let's tell the truth, you know, and that's not a judgment. Like the conditions are the conditions. There were folks who believed in abolition and there was a growing movement to abolish chattel slavery, but it didn't, it wasn't all of us, you know, and there's a famous Harriet taking people to freedom. And if they stopped, she put a shotgun. Adam was like, you know, you can't stop now. So at this point, you know, folks are going to be on a journey. And I think I am calling for people to truly understand that abolition can bring real policy change. Abolition can be a culture that we build. If we think about the culture of white supremacy and patriarchy, they have a culture. And so I'm calling for us to build a culture for ourselves, a culture that will help shift and change the world. And I love that you mentioned Ava DuVernay's 13th. I would love for you to talk more about that direct relationship and the history of that when we think about that punishable clause that basically made slavery legal still. Absolutely. Well, you know, the 13th Amendment says that um, slavery has been abolished unless you've committed a crime <laughs> and you're in servitude uh, to pay that debt for that crime. So it's very simple. Like it's literally like, yes, we this is this is over, except if you did this thing. And we have to understand that laws, especially under this country, laws were created from a white supremacist framework. And so think we think about the black codes, we think about Jim Crow, and so all of a sudden there's no slavery anymore, and yet all these laws come in place that are actually laws that are criminalizing everyday black life. We could think about all of our loved ones who have been fallen by and stolen by police. 
that were literally living their lives as Black people, and they were criminalized for that. We could think about the over 1.8 million people in prison. Right now, half of those people are Black people. There is a reason for that. There's a system in place. It's not a conspiracy. At this point, there are so many books that have been written, so many um, speeches that have been spoken about this long history of Black people being impacted by a criminal legal system that was created to keep us criminalized. And so this conversation around abolition is also about challenging that system. If you think about how much of an industry the prison industry is, and I'm not talking about private prisons, that's, that, that's actually a small part of our prisons. We mostly have public funded prisons that have created an industry. And so who's making those beds? Who's making those, the, those clothes? Who's getting the contracts for those prison buildings and jail buildings? And then what elected officials are benefiting for calling for being harder on crime, being tough on crime? We could look at the 80s and the 90s and the impact of that. And then what happened to our communities? We were decimated, destroyed. I grew up in a community that was deeply impacted by the war on drugs, war on gangs by the time I was 13 years old. I had watched almost every single young man of color in my community be taken off to juvenile hall, be criminalized, be arrested. And then I went to mostly white schools growing up. So then I would go to the white schools and all of them would be doing drugs. There'd be no cops. And I'm like, there's something going on here. If the local drug dealer is actually living in Sherman Oaks and he has all the drugs and not getting busted for it, but my brother has a nickel bag and being pummeled by the police, there's something going on here. And so that is really the conversation. Uh, so I kind of have like a two-part question. I'll save the second half for later. But <laughs> I did, you know, first off, thank you for being able to like walk through the historical context around systemic racism and just, you know, all together. Um, and, you know, I'll say, and Jaren and I have very differing opinions on some of this because, you know, yes, I agree that while the system is flawed, I I often feel a little bit conflicted, right? Because there's also the need to see people being held accountable. So granted, while you have, you know, the data that basically shows that racism and prejudice, it lives in everything, including, you know, this carceral system, <laughs> um, you know, Black Americans have the highest rate of incarceration in the country. Uh, but even still with that, for those of us who are struggling with, you know, knowing that information, especially in a time where hell DNA is telling you, oh, that person who we convicted 40, 50 years ago should actually be free because they didn't do it. And, you know, all of these things, <laughs> uh, you know, how do you there's still so many of us, myself included, um, who still support prison system and jail time for certain acts. Um, how do you reconcile abolishing the carceral state and also holding those people accountable? And, you know, what what if any what are the alternatives to prison and jail time? Yes. So I'll just say that you, that is a very normal reaction. Um, and, um, you know, I never want people to feel like as an abolitionist that I'm ignoring or minimizing the impact of harm on our communities, you know, many of us are victims of harm um, and really terrible harm. And so that feels important. Like we just have to, we have to, you know, agree with that, right? There's one, on the one hand, there's state violence, right? The harm that the system causes us. And then on the other hand, it's the harm that we cause each other in our own neighborhoods and communities. 
But what I'll what I'll challenge you on and, and our listeners on is that accountability, policing and jailing and imprisonment doesn't equal accountability. And that there are other ways in which we can create accountability, not just for the systems in place, but the people also who cause harm. And that if you talk to people who both um, caused harm and have often are victims of harm as well, they will tell you that um, the criminal legal system didn't make them feel more accountable, made, made them feel guilty, made them feel shamed. And we don't always make our best choices also from a place of guilt and shame. I also challenge us because jailing and imprisonment as we know it inside of those systems are incredibly violent. They don't rehabilitate. Those are not spaces that actually make people more whole. They're spaces that make people more traumatized. And when we have more traumatized being, we will most definitely have more harm caused. And so what we're really trying to get to the root here, abolition is about, uh, about the root causes what are the root causes of harm? Of uh, what are the, Why do people steal? Why do people murder? Why do people rape? Why do people do those things? We have not actually answered any of those questions. We have not thought about that. And the police are definitely not trying to figure that out. And so it's actually our job to get to the root of why these issues are happening and then deal with the root of why those issues are happening. That doesn't mean that we're always going to get what we want or feel or see. Um, I also have to really, you know, challenge folks. The way we've been taught is to think that punishment is accountability, right? Like I, there's so many times where I've seen people write on a post, this person did this to me or this happened to me. I want them to rot in hell. That's the way we've been taught. But we have to actually unlearn that way of dealing with harm and learn to to forgive actively, another chapter of my book. And it doesn't mean that we have to forgive pass in a passive way or in a way that continues to harm us. We can set our boundaries. We can, we can be healing. But there are so many other ways. A good example uh, with all of its flaws was South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Those folks caused serious harm. And if you look at those commission tapes and you see those folks, many of them, law enforcement are often sometimes community members, you know, talking amongst each other, other South Africans talking amongst each other around harm they caused and, and, and sitting in a circle and facing the person who harmed you and making demands of that person to change. Because when what we want to happen often, right, is we want someone to feel apologetic for what they did. And then we want them to change that. They, we want them to never do that thing again. And I can't promise you that our current prison system will do that. I know for a fact that it doesn't. So, and I'm so glad that you brought up that I believe it's chapter five, about <laughs> forgiveness, because uh, that that was my my follow up. Um, <laughs> so, because I and, and Jared and I have talked about this on this show at length, I'm a person who I'm still... The Lord is still working on me and learning how to forgive people, right? So, you know, you talked about like active forgiveness. And I think for me, I, I, I sometimes even find that a little bit triggering because, you know, we're from a people that are very forgiving people. Because if we weren't, this would have been burned to the ground a long time ago, right? And But then, you know, you have situations in which, you know, uh, just judges are handing Bibles off to Amber Geiger. And then, you know, it's, oh, I forgive X, Y, Z. And I'm like, uh, uh, are you forgive? 
are you glad you've forgiven? Because that sounds like a God problem. I am not God. And so, you know, how do you, how do we reconcile that for those of us? Because for me, I do not forgive uh, George Zimmerman. I do not forgive Gregory McMichael and Travis McMichael and Roddy Bryant. I do not. Um, so how do we reconcile that amongst all of this? How can we be active forgivers? <laughs> okay, so this is a very, very important one. I wrote this chapter last, my hardest chapter. Um, when I'm talking about forgiveness, I'm often not talking about the, the person who did the most harm to you. I'm talking about in our interpersonal relationships and the places where we have the most trust. I don't think I forgive George Zimmerman either. I don't even think I can, I, I don't think I can give him that. He doesn't deserve my forgiveness. I'm actually talking about people we are in direct relationship to. We are taught so much about um, of shunning people, um, pushing people out of our lives that we we can often block our blessings. So when I when I'm talking about forgiveness, I'm actually talking about the people who you love the most that may cause a lot of harm to you. That you know, actually, I want to be in community with you. I want to be family with you. How do I actively work on this forgiveness? So. I'm not asking us to forgive white supremacists. That's that's actually not. Some of us may want to. Some of us may want to in our hearts, and that you know more power to you. But I'm actually asking, I'm actually asking us to forgive the people we love the most, the people we are in community the most, and sometimes the people that we can cut off um, more quickly than than we should. So that's really where that comes from. But I, but I'll say the journey of forgiveness is also a really important journey. Do not forgive. Quickly, um, because sometimes, as you said, you know, part of our shaping as Black people, it's part of how we've survived. Was that sort of like we got to forgive immediately, right? Um, but that can also be dangerous for yourself if you forgive too quickly and try to enter back into a relationship. That can be really damaging and re-traumatizing. So the forgiveness process is one that, when I say actively, is one that you're investigating, one that you're coming back to. What did this person do or what did I do? Sometimes it's about forgiving yourself actively. What have you done that you feel is unforgivable, that actually you should be giving yourself forgiveness first and go through that process of forgiveness? I have, you know, my own um, processes of forgiveness for people in my life. Um, you know, when I was 12 years old and I talk about this in the book, my mom told me who my real dad was, you know, and I was like, wait a second, what? <laughs> 12 years? That means for 12 years, I didn't know a whole family, a whole structure. And, you know, when I met these folks, when I met my family, I was like, that's why I'm the way I am. Like, I'm more like them than I am the other side of my family. And it made all the sense to me. And it was hard. I was very upset. I was very hurt. You know, I'm a, I was a child. But as I look back, you know, what I needed was a, a, a process so that I could hold what this meant for my life as a, as a young person. And then um, a, a real learning around, like, what does it look like to actively forgive my mother? You know, the person who held this from me for so long. And in those ways, when we when we give ourselves more room to forgive, we actually give ourselves more room to be in connection. Because at the end of the day, you know, what trauma does to us and what trauma has done is it's kept us disconnected from ourselves, from our purpose, and from each other. And so forgiveness to me opens us up to more connection with ourselves and others. Wow, uh, Patrice, thank you for saying that because I am on my own journey, like me and Shauna, like she mentioned, we have talked about this quite a bit. 
I'm more of a forgiving person. Like my, I would say my philosophical and spiritual um, beliefs, you know, requires me to do that. Um, I believe in radical love um, and liberation. However, you know, I was sexually abused as a child and the person who did it was someone who was a close family friend. And I remember contemplating whether I wanted to turn to the criminal justice system, um, but I've been really fascinated with restorative justice and figuring out how do we fi find that accountability uh, without, without seeking um, imprisonment. And while I'm struggling with that, I know many people are as well. And for those who are struggling, who are trying to reimagine a world without incarceration, can you, what can you say to them to kind of jumpstart that deprogramming, if you will? Yeah, and I just um, want to send you a lot of love as a survivor. Um, and thank you for sharing that. And, you know, it's, it's the real failure of the criminal legal system, because it actually doesn't center on survivors and survivors needs. Um, it truly centers on what is legal, what's the law. Uh, it's the reason why it took forever for the criminal legal system to actually criminalize R. Kelly, right? To actively seek accountability for the harm that he had caused. You know, I think for, for me, uh, the power of Tarana Burke's work in particular in the Me Too movement was that, you know, so much of what she talked about was restorative justice and how our criminal legal system is not a system that actually is interested in survivors' needs. And so much of the work, especially inside Black community, is this, um, because often, you know, as many stories of sexual abuse, it happens inside your family. It's, it happens with close loved ones. And so this idea of sending that person off to the police and to a prison system um, is, is deeply conflicting. And so then survivors are often left to just sit with it because there isn't an alternative system. And that is where we, um, our collective, that's where we have to dig in more. We have to create new avenues for folks to feel like they can be uh, and have the justice that they deserve. And it means that our communities have to be holding that as well. What would it look like if you had uh, a, an infrastructure where if something happened to you, you could have went to an uh, active adult in your life that was like, you know what, unacceptable. We have to remove this person in, 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 in this way. And we have to actually figure out what the process is to healing again. Those things happen not inside of the current government infrastructure, but people are doing this all the time in different ways in their own communities. So I think, you know, this, this book is also asking us to create um, new community structures, new spaces inside our communities where we can hold space for all of the very, very painful and complicated ways that harm happens to every single one of us on a daily basis. So one of the things that I really love about the book is how accessible it feels. And like, even from like the intro at the onset, you like, don't let this be a book that's just sitting on your shelf. You, you, you activate it every day. <laughs> so, you know, like you making notes, you better find a, some sticky, some sticky notes, something. Um, so in the book, you talk about, you know, about how abolitionist practice incorporates like every aspect 
of our lives. Like you break down from, from what we eat to what we listen to, just all of that can be an abolitionist practice. For the audience really quickly, can you share about that, like your personal practices and kind of any ideas about how do you integrate activism and abolitionist ideology into your day-to-day life? I love that. So first thing that's important for folks to know about me is like, I really care. I really care about people, but I really care about Black people. And so first tenets for me of abolition is is care and how we care for each other because the opposite of abolition is exactly what we see. It's a a system of punishment, revenge. Um, It's a system of uh, profit over people. And so the first way that I practice abolition is I show up for the my loved ones. I show up for the people around me. Um, I give them the care that I feel like they deserve. Uh, And I also ask for that care back. I ask for a reciprocity and care. Um, I'm a person that is really close to my my family and community. I'm on several text threads a day, checking up on my loved ones. I'm, um, you know, making sure people get what they need. Uh, my brother who has severe mental illness, and I've talked about this a lot over the last, you know, 20 years, I'm, I am his primary caregiver, um, both legally, uh, but also I before the legal system was involved, I was his primary caregiver. Um, And so I really do believe that like we have to build those infrastructures of care together. I like to feed my loved ones a lot. I like to have folks over when they're in a surge. Um, (laughs) um, You know, I like to gather a lot. Um, And I think for me, you know, a big part of my abolitionist practice is also continually reevaluating what my values are and how they're important to me and how I can help use those values and extend them to others. Um, I think the one place, and maybe you will ask this, but I want to just say it now, the one place I struggle with, <clears throat> and I think this is like something that Black women struggle with in particular, is boundaries. Because um, I really do think that's part of an abolitionist practice as well. And so that's something that like 2022, I'm like, let's practice my no more. Let's practice my maybe. I'll get back to you more. Uh, let's practice my, I don't have to give everybody everything, you know, I can save that for the people, my trusted circle. Uh, and I think that has been important for my um, evolution as an abolitionist. Wow. Wow. Patrice, I wish, I wish we had more time to really like, I can talk to you like all, like all day. Like there's something really comforting, mm-hmm. something very mm-hmm. comforting about hearing from you. Um, but But you are our first guest for 2022, so thank you for that. This is like an honor to be able to have this conversation with you, a very important conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Um, And thank you for writing this book. And I hope that it really starts to heal um, and transform in the ways that we need to see, especially in our communities. Um, So thank you for that. And to learn more about Patrice Colors, visit her website, at patricecolors.com, that's P-A-T-R-I-S-S-E-C-U-L-L-O-R-S.com. You can also purchase both of her books there as well, and be sure to pre-order An Abolitionist Handbook today. It is released on January 25th. And as always, for more news and commentary on the culture, visit thegrio.com, that's G-R-I-O.com, and follow our podcast on Instagram at DearCulturePod. We want to remind
remind our listeners to support your local black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Harlem Hops. Harlem Hops is Manhattan, New York's first 100% African-American owned local craft beer bar. From frothy draft to chili bottled beers, Harlem Hops prides themselves on working with the best local breweries to offer a bespoke collection of niche, interesting, and innovative beers to explore. To learn more about Harlem Hops, visit their website at www.harlemhops.com. That's H-A-R-L-E-M-H-O-P-S.com. The Grio has published a list of 50 plus black businesses to support during the coronavirus pandemic. If you'd like your business to be featured, email us at info at That's G-R-I-O dot com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five star review. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions and compliments. We love those to podcast at the dot com. The Dear Culture Podcast is brought to you by The Griot and co-produced by Taji Sr., Sydney Henriquez-Payne, and Abdul Kadus. 